0: Alrighty, King of the Ride listeners, here's a quick story for you. When I record a podcast that takes place on any given day, and then later on, maybe call it a couple days later, maybe even a few weeks later, it's time to put that conversation out to the world. So I go back in, I listen to the conversation again, I create an intro and occasionally an outro, we do some uh, technological magic that makes an audio file into a podcast, and then hit publish, voila, all done. Now, today's conversation is different. Today's conversation with Dr. Meg Fisher, the UCI world champion many times over, Paralympic gold medalist, doctor of physical therapy, motivational speaker, and coach Meg Fisher, among other talents, that conversation took place this morning. And it was striking to me from the very start just how impactful this conversation would be to me and hopefully to many of you. It has now been a few hours. I, uh, I went out for a quick spin. I came home to record this introduction, maybe, maybe just two and a half hours after the initial conversation took place. Not the days or weeks that it typically takes me amid the juggle of keeping every day straight. And that has everything to do with the, with the gravity of this conversation and how candid Meg is, how important her story is to tell. This conversation is a standout And you will shortly learn of what I'm speaking when I stop my introduction, which I will do right about now. My friends, welcome to episode number 88 of King of the Ride podcast with Meg Fisher.
1: Now, I'm super excited to have gotten to, to actually kind of virtually well meet your wife because um, we have a lot of the same friends uh, I've known Jess Sarah since Xterra days many moons ago
0: oh goodness that's the way back machine
1: yeah um and so uh, I just hear such great things and so um you know it's really neat to to, to meet that meet her meet um, Kristen from it's just it's just neat it's a way it's a great way to start a Monday
0: well, excellent. Um, yeah it's sort of amazing what technology has done for better and worse through the pandemic, but yeah, uh it's a nice way to to have these conversations from where you are in presumably Missoula, Montana, and where we are in Vermont and goodness gracious, here we are um, okay, so. I want to jump straight into the thick of things because you and I were on a call last week um, and you said something to the effect of, and I don't really think I'm paraphrasing, you said, and then my leg literally got torn off, but that's another story entirely. And I thought to myself, holy moly, uh, I mean everybody has a story and yours is going to be more interesting than than some, probably than most. Um, I believe you were 19 at the time. If you were to tell me a standout story from your late teenage years, what, what comes to mind?
1: (laughs) I wish it was a a really just like one word answer. Um, I get asked all the time, you know, what happened to you? Um, I get asked in bars. I get asked in locker rooms, which is probably my least favorite place to be asked by Uh naked people. Like what happened to you? Um, cause it's, it's, it's not so simple. Um, it's not like, like a coffee table answer. It's, it's often not as fun as when you see somebody as a, has like a, a cast on their arm, like, you know, oh, yeah, what happened? It was, um, yeah. so when I was 19, um, 20 years ago, I was in a rollover car accident. The car rolled eight and a half times and I wish it was just me in the car. Um, my girlfriend and I, my, my, my first love. Um, we were driving from Chicago to Missoula, Montana, and, um, she was going to start grad school. I was going to continue my sophomore year at the university of Montana and, um, in the middle of South Dakota, yeah, it, it, a lot of things changed. Um, Sarah died that day and yesterday would have been her, um, 45th birthday. Um, she was born on mother's day. So, uh, yesterday was a big deal. Um, for a lot of people but especially her family and the people who loved her and uh, you would think that 20 years gone by it wouldn't sting as much as it does but uh, it still does
0: oh.
1: and, and on that day um even when the car rolled all those times um i got a lot of o- injuries a lot of owies so i like to say so um uh, i don't really remember a lot of it because i was busy dying i had a, a it hit my head really hard and um, I was in a coma. My brain was swelling and bleeding. Um, and uh, I, the most visible thing is that, yeah, I had my left foot ripped off. Um, uh, it took a lot of years, but eventually I looked at the accident report. And I guess um, there's some bones of my feet still somewhere in South Dakota. Um, I don't remember any of this, um, but I was life flighted off taking my ambulance to a uh, hospital, then life flighted to an, another hospital um, and where I had to have people breathing for me. And um, so I just, i had lost that ability. And I woke up um, a week later and they weren't sure how I was gonna wake up or what I would be like when I woke up. Um, and um, so I went from being 19 and a college athlete to being um, really limited. And uh, I kind of, I woke up kind of with a broken heart and a broken body and really unsure how to move forward. Because mm-hmm. at 19, you really don't have a lot of, you have know, a lot of skills, but not really, yeah. not a lot of coping skills. I mean, at 19, nothing hurts, right? It's mm-hmm. like the most glorious time. Um, the world is your oyster. You have all these opportunities. You're maybe in college or starting some of your first jobs and you feel like, you know, the world's ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Um and then at that point, yeah, uh, at nineteen, um, my later years, it kind of—I have this big pause where it's like I have the before, and then the after.
0: Mm-hmm. You are correct. That is not a one-word answer, um, and it it does require that uh, prelude in in a way, instead mm-hmm. of just saying it was a car accident. Um, how about? Oops. Yeah. How, what was, what was life like prior to that? You mentioned being uh, a collegiate athlete. Um, where did you grow up? Did you have siblings? What were your parents up to? What sports were you up to?
1: Um, I have awesome parents. Um, my dad's Canadian. My mom's American. I was born in Canada. Uh-huh. So my first language was Canadian. <clears throat> so, um, my mom's from, yeah. And my mom's from Chicago. So I like to tell people I'm fluent in Canadian and deep dish pizza.
0: Uh (laughs) that's excellent um uh, let's see
1: my family had a farm in rocky mountain house alberta which is about uh two and a half hours northwest of calgary just outside of banff national park Uh um it's beautiful i got my first horse when i was three a little mare named flicka Uh loved her to pieces and we chased cows and uh lived the dream um my parents like a lot of parents realized that it wasn't good for them to stay together. And so they separated and I moved to Chicago. Um, And then my dad ended up moving to Vancouver Island in British Columbia. He wanted to get off, get off the farm. Mm -hmm. And so um, while I was in Chicago, I really uh, leaned into my Chicago heritage and I'm a fifth generation cubby and uh, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh Um, And (laughs) Learned to play tennis because tennis up on the farm really doesn't exist. Um, and so, but I've always been into sports. My mom was part of the generation that's, that leaned into Title IX. Um, uh, my mom was big with Billie Jean King and she was a competitive tennis player. So, of course, I just followed and did what my mom did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I found tennis. Um, I also played softball and basketball, but tennis has always been my favorite thing. And I took that to college.
0: Uh-huh. How about... Academically, were you right on par? Were, you, were academics something that were exciting? Or, or, I mean, you obviously went to college, uh, so it must have been of some interest.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like learning. I wouldn't say it was probably my, my priority at the time. I went to a great school, yeah. um, Hinsdale Central High School, go Red Devils. I won the Red Devil Award for <laughs> my tennis team for being most spirited. Um, as I've always been a really good uh, cheerleader, my sure. teammate. Yeah. Um, and I went to school to be, at first, to be a wildlife biologist because I wanted to be the next Jane Goodall, but I wanted to f- study big cats and, and go in the jungles and um, save their habitat. So the University of Montana was a really natural fit. They have a strong wildlife program. And also from the tennis courts, I can see the ski hill. Mm-hmm. And so it was, uh, and after class, you can go fishing. So it was like... It's a pretty good place. Best I mean, if of you've all seen worlds. That, yeah. yeah. If you've seen the movie, A River Runs Through It or are familiar with that story, um, it actually wasn't filmed in Missoula. It was filmed in British Columbia. So the joke's on you. But the story <laughs> is um, from Missoula. Um, it's wonderful. It's a great place to be. We're surrounded by mountains. There's a river that goes through it. And it's beautiful. However, I was hurt at 19. And so I kind of was lost. I was like, well, I I remember waking up from my coma and very quickly realizing that my foot was gone and eventually thinking like, well, how am I, I can't stand, I can't play tennis. It was kind of, it was really upsetting. Um, however, before I could even walk again, I was back on the tennis courts. I was, uh, somebody got me an office chair with wheels and, uh, it was this beautiful, wonderful retired woman that I would known for years, but hadn't been close with. And when I was stuck at home in September, when all my friends had gone back to university or gone back to wherever it is that they migrated to, I was all alone. And she saw that, so she would come over and um, take me from my mom. You know, just you know, give my mom a break as well because I was I needed a lot of care. Uh-huh. And she took her office chair and a hopper of balls. And she said, when you, when you're able to stand, you're going to have a good volley. So she would feed me volleys and, um, she helped me get my a job back. I had I'd been a tennis pro teaching. And so I was actually teaching kids. So the little, little tots I would scoot around on an office chair and toss balls to kids. Mm-hmm. And then when I got a leg, I was able to stand next to a hopper of balls and feed. And then when I could move again. Um, so really sports was what helped me regain my identity. Cause I was painfully shy beforehand huh. but a nice frontal lobe injury changed my personality so I'm actually I can't shut up now yeah um, so that's that's kind of been the trajectory like sports has always been a a way that I, I, I find community because even after I got hurt I, I really didn't know how to find community again or find friendship because I looked so different I moved so different and I didn't know what I would be capable of um, somebody, one of my healthcare providers told me, sweetheart, you'll never be as good as you were. Yeah. And, um, that could have been a really deflating thing. Thankfully it wasn't. Yeah. It was really inspiring. today.
0: Sure. Um, now brain injury is very near and dear to my heart. It's not the right term, but, um, my, my father suffered a stroke 19 years ago and it's, it's changed every portion of his life, my parents' life. Um, I, I want to say you were in a coma for a week. Yeah. You just mentioned one of one of the long lasting symptoms, and that now you're loquacious and and you like to talk as opposed to being shy. Are there other noticeable things for you or for for family members before and after?
1: Yeah, um, I have a really hard time writing, so I have a bit of aphasia. Uh, word finding was very challenging for me at first when I woke up. I could look at something, you know, here I'm, I'm holding a pen. Yeah, It's really quite common. People have trouble with word finding all the time, but you, I could look at this and go, I know this word. I learned this word a long time ago, but I can't find it. I can't say it. I can't get it out. And so you talk around it and you say, well, it's something that you write with it, but you can't erase. It's 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 permanent and you kind of stutter around it. And eventually people are like, oh, you mean a pen? And you're like, yeah, that's yeah. one. And sometimes you can feel those little pathways, those neural pathways being rewritten and rebuilt. Uh-huh. And sometimes you can't. So when I'm tired, I have a much harder time with word finding. Again, writing is well, really hard for me because it's getting here to there. And I also have very little sense of time. Like planning just doesn't happen. Yeah. I don't see the future. I just, it just. Uh, I can I ha- I I keep a lot of calendar businesses running because I buy calendars. So I'm like, i like c- I can do this. I can figure this out. I can figure out how to see what next week is, or I can plan ahead. And um, it's really hard. Yeah, people are like, "How can you be so successful and stink so bad at these things?" But I just can't do
0: it. Yep. Yeah. No. It's very frustrating. I I believe it. Um, yeah. Brain injury is such a mystery to so many um yes. so how how did the chronology work how about how did the chronology work literally you were i want to say you're going to be a sophomore in college at the time of the accident mm-hmm. um you go on to graduate and and pursue multiple levels of academia um how long before you return to school is the first literal question
1: Actually, fairly quickly, I did an online classes and I was horrible at them.
0: Yeah.
1: Worst grades, but I needed to have some health insurance. Yeah. And so, um, uh, it's actually a very common way people can get funding or what have you to take a college course. And then you're able to get um, university level health insurance. And um, that's how I did it initially. So it was very soon after. And I don't remember those courses. Yep. I remember they were horrible and um, I didn't know how to do it. Um, but then I ended up taking, so 11 months after I lost my leg the first time, I actually had more of it amputated. Um, and so it's really fun story to be like, yeah, I got to lose my leg twice. Um, and, uh, so I wasn't sure where I was going to live because I had to be close to home, close to my prosthetist, which is a person who makes prosthetic legs Mm -hmm. and they're often, they work alongside orthotists. And they create orthoses, which are like maybe back braces or knee braces or ankle braces. And um, I think of them often like Santa's little helpers. Like they have this cool little workshed and they make these amazing devices that transform people's lives. So I had to be near them. I was in Chicago for a long time. And then I, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to stay in Chicago. I didn't know where to go. I had some community here in Missoula. And I came back. And this was when triathlon was really big, at least in our community. And you might know um, Ben Hoffman, who's one of the top Ironman athletes, Lindsay Corbin, another top U.S. Ironman athlete. I went to college with those kids. And so when I came back here, they were crushing. And so I just like, I want to be like them. So 11 months after I lost my leg the second time, I did my first triathlon. And that was really transformative because I think for a lot of years, even as a competitive athlete, I thought triathlons were like up here, uh-huh. like way off the charts. Like how can the body do three sports in one day? Yeah. Um, and so doing a triathlon was what kind of got me back into my athletic career because, because I didn't really know where, what direction I was going to take my energies.
0: Yeah. Um. So I I asked that saying that was the literal question. How were you? I guess it's still a literal question. How were you coping? Both inside, um, what you portrayed to the world. How 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 were you coping then?
1: That's a deep question, um, and it's never. It's not a one-word answer either. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I, how I was coping, honestly. Um, each day comes and it's, it sounds so cheesy and we can see how many more prophetic quotes out there about time and the meaning of time and the weight of time and that it never stops. And there are so many times that I wish that it would stop. Mm hmm. Cause I wasn't ready for the next day, but lo and behold, there it came again. And there was a time that I was just so sad. I was so sad. I wished I could trade places with Sarah. I wish she'd been the one that lived. I wished that I could trade places. I wished things were different. I wished I had my leg. I wished so much. And there was a time where I just realized I just I didn't want to be sad anymore. And it's not that easy. You can't just like stop being sad. You can't just, it's not a, a, a switch you can flip. But there was a day where I was just like, I just don't want to be sad anymore. And that really was one one kind of crux point where I realized that Maybe there's something good that can come out of this. And maybe I can use that energy, that sad energy, and transform it into some somehow some forward motion. <clears throat> and I learned a lot. Like it's, I've learned podcasts. Like, there's a great podcast out there, um, TED Talk, actually, about um, the dark side of the subjunctive. And it's something that's really transformed my life um, and the way I speak with myself and with other people. And that the could, shoulds, woulds, Talk about things that have never happened or will never happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of beauty in them. Like you talk about possibility and hope, but like, I wish um, I could go back. I should have been the one that was driving. I should have been the one that died. I, you know, that I can't change that. Um, I like, I wish I could get out of bed in the morning and walk. I can't, I wish I could, you know, go downstairs easily. I wish I could do all sorts of things. I wish I could do a lot, but there's things, there's a lot. And people will always say, well, there's so much you can do Meg. I'm like, yeah, but I don't have an ankle. Yeah. I I actually, I don't even have all of my stomach muscles. They took half of them away. I can't do a sit-up. If I lay on the ground, I'm a gosh darn turtle. Uh I can't get up. (laughs) But um yeah, we learn to adapt and overcome, of course. And if you think of, you spend more time in the, what you need and what you want, um, the indicative tenses, you, you realize like, well, what do I want? I want to be able to get off the ground. Okay. You figure it out. I want to be able to be with my friends. I want to be like, I want to be like Lindsay Corbin. What do I need to do to do that? Well, step one, I'm going to sign up for a triathlon where it was a sprint distance triathlon. I'd never swam a thousand yards. It was an indoor pool swims. I had had to borrow someone's bike and I'd never run. I'm going to use bunny ears for run. Cause I did like this <laughs> old man shuffle version. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, a you know, I hadn't run five kilometers, you know, in that second chapter of my life, even in my first chapter, I'd never swam a thousand yards. Why would somebody sure. do that?
0: Right. On purpose. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so like, Yeah,
1: that was really transformative. And and I I found like, what do I want? What do I need to do to get what I want? And I I don't try to spend as much time wondering what could have happened or what should have happened and, or even in the future tense of like, what could happen? I try not to spend too much time there. I think I I briefly go into what the possibilities for the future might be. And then I go, okay, what do I want to do? What do I want for that future? And how do I, what do I need to do now to get that?
0: Uh-huh. Say the, the name of the podcast again. It was a TED talk, the dark side of the subjunctive.
1: Yeah. The dark side
0: of the subjunctive. With oh a food
1: tran, P-H-U-C, first name, last name, tran, T-R-A-N. And I, I actually prescribe that to my patients now because I'm a doctor of physical therapy, Yeah. Um, but I will never, um, I, I, what I tell is don't shut on yourself and don't shut on anyone else. I will never tell you what you should do. Uh-huh. I will ask you what you want to do. And then we will make a plan of what you need to do to get what you want. But I don't ever come to me with what you should like. Oh, I should have made my bed in the morning. That's just guilt. Yeah. I should have done my exercises, Meg. I don't care. I don't care if you do your exercises. I don't hurt. Uh-huh. My knee is fine. If you want your knee to do something and you've come to me to help you, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to get what you say you want. But if you don't want that, that's okay. If it changes, that's fine.
0: But I'm here to try to help you. That is phenomenal, quite frankly. Um, <clears throat> I do want to get into your current career, um, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm also certainly, being that this is a podcast that that often has the thread of the bicycle in it, I want to hit on cycling. so you're getting into triathlon. Um, at what point does, does cycling hit your radar? Because you end up taking to it in a, uh, let's say world champion winning way many times over. So yeah, how does, how does cycling really hit your radar in a big way?
1: Well, it's probably through tri yeah, through triathlon.
0: Um,
1: and then, so 11 months after I lost my leg the second time I did that triathlon. And then a few months after that, um, I had a a health setback where I was told I'd never walk again. Um, And it was, yeah, really sad. Um, I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. And I um, eventually was paired with a service dog. Her name was Betsy the Wonder Dog. This is Buck the Wonder Dog who just ran in here. Buck, you (laughs) have to go outside, sir. It's wonderful to see you. Oh, and everybody's here. The cat, the one-eyed cat is here. Everybody, go out. Thank you. I think Buck the dog is part dolphin. Like, his nose can, like, he just, like, boop, opens doors <laughs> so well. And then just let Dr. Doolittle's circus in. Um, so, yeah, I, I was injured 11 months later. Uh lost more of my leg. And then a few months after that, I I had a health setback and they just, I couldn't wear a prosthetic leg. And they said, that's not something that may ever be in your future again. And you may be stuck to crutches and a wheelchair. That was really a giant bummer. And then Betsy, the wonder dog came into my life to help me by picking up things. I dropped or opening doors and not to mention just being a a ray of sunshine, just a fun little spotted cow dog. And she's so fun. Um, but like a dog, she, just, she wants to play. She wants to, you have to take care of your service dogs. They don't take care of themselves. They're super smart, but you um, they they need care. Uh-huh. Um, and was kind of that motivation to take care of her. Help me again, take care of myself. I saw people mountain biking with their dogs out on the trails. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And with her, it was very easy to have her as a training partner, because I've you know moved so differently and didn't really trust myself, and I didn't want to be the slow person ever or slow anyone else's day down. Um, Betsy didn't care. Betsy was like sweet, and actually she was faster than me at first. And I was I was fine to be slower than my dog at first, but I'm um, having a, a two year old um, cattle dog as a training partner is pretty rad. Um, <laughs> she's she was super fit and she became my motivation. So I eventually would go for two mountain bike rides a day. I'd take a mountain bike ride with her. And then I'd go for one with myself for myself, a little more challenging. And, um, uh, she, she, that dog was amazing. I think everyone will talk about how great their dog is, but my dog empirically was the best. Um, and, because of her, I met people on the trail, and because of her, I met people who were doing twenty-four hour mountain bike races, and they invited me out to join their their carnival team. And so, um, actually, it was a competitive five-person team, and we won. Okay. And then the next year, I went came back by myself, and I won a, a female class overall, and then I was third in you know the whole, over I was third in the men's class through them through mountain biking. I met uh, people who were doing Xterra and it's they triathlon. They're like, hey, come on down. And um, it turns out I was the first female challenged athlete to ever do an Xterra off-road triathlon. Okay. And I kept doing that. And I ended up going to Maui a couple of times. Uh-huh. And then through that 24 um, hour racing, I met people on the national team who invited me out to training camps and that just kept snowballing. And I met people in the U S um, the U S na- uh, national triathlon team reached out. So I was racing with them. And there were a couple of years mm-hmm. where I, I raced uh road nationals and triathlon nationals and worlds, um, uh, yeah, both in triathlon and in, in cycling. So time trialing really worked out well, and that became my forte.
0: Mm-hmm. Which you're glossing over with great uh, a plume. I, I have a list of your results, which include gold medal in London in the TT, silver in London in 3K pursuit, silver in Rio TT, bronze in Rio. So you've gold, silver, bron- bronze, three time UCI time trial world champion, two-time world time trial champion, two-time world road race champion, two-time Xterra world champion. Um so you're doing more than just participating. You're 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 in it and having a great deal of success. Um is that your your inherent nature is to try to thrive and and be the best? Do you have a phenomenal physiology? Do you have a, a skill set that, that you know, allows you to do these things really well? How do you suppose you had so, so much success in these sports?
1: I'd say yes to all of it. Yeah. Um, I think part of that is I have good genetics. Um, my dad was a competitive hockey player and my mom was a competitive tennis player. So that I come from, you know, I'm bound to be balanced and coordinated i'm not very tall um so i think it makes me really condensed and awesome Mm -hmm. um let's see um and i I am stubborn as i'll get out and my parents will tell you that too like i people telling me what you can't do i'm very eager to say yes i can Mm -hmm. people um prosthetists telling me you won't break this leg and i'll be like yeah yeah i will um so like I walk or, I was walking around on a foot for like a 300 pound man for a while because I kept breaking feet for like my size people. Um, and so I, I would, like use heavy duty stuff. Cause I, I just want to, I want to break it. I want not, to not break that or and, and not to be too cheesy, but yeah, break down those barriers. Um, and you talk about coping, I think, uh, not having, pretty human to have like not great self-confidence like i don't feel great a lot of the time um i didn't feel confident as being a para-athlete like i didn't want anybody to know that i didn't have a leg like i wanted to walk so well without a limp and i wanted to be so fast that people they know is the, the fact that i didn't have my leg um was an afterthought i didn't want people to know that my brain trauma um is as advanced as it is um i didn't want people to know that like you know everything that's going on so i thought if i could have these objective medals or accolades or collegiate degrees like that if i could have that that was proof that i'm good enough Mm -hmm. like that is my ticket to make making friends like if i'm fast enough maybe if somebody will want to be my friend i mean that kind of gets me to cry because that's the thing it's like i I didn't have friends in high school. <laughs> um, I did. I, I used to sit alone and uh, go to the library and eat lunch because um, I didn't have anybody to sit with. So if I was good at sports, I had teammates who had to be nice to me. And so when I went to college, I was on a tennis team. So I was like, oh, I have some friends, but they didn't want to hang out with me either. I didn't go to parties. Hmm. Um, and then I don't really think it's cause I'm mean or nasty or like people don't, I don't know why people, I never really knew how to make friends. Like i lacked those social skills somehow, but if I felt like if I had, um, these objective things that like that gave me worth, that made me okay. That made me like somebody would want to sit next to me and have lunch. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's part of what's driven me. And I guess the other component is, um, I have learned that I can overcome a lot. And so in a time trial, there's lots of sayings about that. Like you have to have no love for yourself or the whole thing of like, it never gets easier. You just go faster. And, um, I, I can lean into that. Like, I love it when it's hard. I love it when it's hot. I love it when it's really awful yeah. because I know that it won't last forever. And that I can do really hard things for a long time. So like unbound 200. Sure. Yeah. I know it's going to suck at some point, Yeah. but I can do that. I can do that definitely. And but if I can do it, chances are somebody else can do it too.
0: Uh huh. Incredible. Um, yeah, you've proven that a handful of times over. Um, what does what does the the U.S. Paralympic system look like? Um, meaning, are you able to do? Are you able to pursue the sports exclusively? Do most athletes do that? Do most have? other full or part-time jobs like what are the nuts and bolts of that system
1: that's a great question um this year it's changed a ton like with tokyo and and the summer games um in beijing uh they uh athletes are get supported way better than when i did it 15 years ago um like the easiest one to uh, talk about is like Um, There's this organization called Operation Gold. It's Mm -hmm. kind of this hidden thing that I don't think everybody knows about. But people are incentivized to win medals. And if, let's say, Michael Phelps won his gold medal, he won $25,000 for that gold medal. Mm -hmm. Cool. He put a lot of effort into that. Bravo. Um, If I won my gold medal, like in London, I won $5,000, which is awesome. But... That's very different, um, and so if when you look at that Michael Phelps photo of him holding all of his gold medals, yes, that was a ton of effort and sacrifice that he put in to win his his awards. And um, I'm, he, but if you look at Paralympians, um, what we've had to sacrifice, which is still time with our families, time away from work, um, being able to have a job that might pay for your retirement. In addition to um, having the opportunity to buy prosthetic legs or adaptive equipment or healthcare or what have you, or um, I mean, it's the same sacrifices. And I might even suggest um, even more of a sacrifice
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, because most people don't have to buy their wheelchair or, you know, rely on outside help to get to where they've been as much as a Paralympian. And this year was the first year um, where Paralympians and Olympians were compensated by the um, Operation Gold project um, the same. And partly because of sponsorships like from Toyota. And that's why you see when you watch the games, you see like big Toyota logos or McDonald's or night Coke or whatever, mm-hmm. um, polo or what have you, like our Olympic team and Paralympic team, Also, it just changed names. It used to be the U.S. Olympic team or the Olympic training centers or what have you. Now it's the Olympic and Paralympic Hmm. training center. So now the Paralympic and Olympics uh, names are the same um, or or put on equal par. Because before it was like, you did kind of feel like you were put back in a corner and like not recognized for the amount of effort and sacrifice. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm of that, you know prior generation Yeah. Um, I'm re- i retired after the rio games which was awesome mm-hmm. um I, I miss it but now i get to do things that yeah you have to be really dedicated like i couldn't do a lot of things like when you were racing on the tour like I'm, i suspect you i can't imagine all the sacrifice but they probably didn't want you doing a lot of things like you don't get to go skiing you don't get to go mountain biking you don't get to do mm-hmm. these other things that are fun like if you're a road athlete like you spend time on the road on the rollers or on the track mm-hmm. or, Yep. You know, that stuff. Yeah, um, I missed weddings. I missed funerals. I missed. Um, I, I I got married. Um, I got engaged in the Eiffel Tower on Paris after <laughs> after the London Games. Yeah, we took the Channel across and got engaged at sunset. It was awesome. Nice. Um, the week before I left for Rio, I was um, asked for a divorce. And so um, that was hard and I'm grateful for all, I mean, I'm grateful for that time with my partner. Uh I'm um, not saying cycling was the reason I, I, my relationship didn't work out. There's, there's never one reason, but probably part of it. I mean, how many times do people kind of get jealous of your partner's bike, right? Or time on the bike. (laughs) Um, um, That's, it it takes a lot of time. And um, I, Probably didn't handle all of that right, like she said like yeah I'm, I'm I'm game for you to do do London, but I need you to retire and I was like, "No, let's just do one more yeah. and because I love it, it was my teammates were are they're my family, and um that's just how it goes.
0: yeah well, that isn't. I go back to my original intro, which is you've got an interesting story to tell and you're, you've definitely got an interesting story to tell. Um, let's switch to your current career. You are Dr. Meg Fisher, PhD with a doctorate uh, in physical therapy from the University of Washington School of Medicine. Um, I've read that you believe that movement is medicine. I'd like you to open that up for us. Um, you're very accomplished in the classroom as you are in the real world, obviously. So, so give me an idea of where that, that interrelationship of, of academia and the real world overlap.
1: Well, I think we're all athletes of life, really. I mean, we're all working at 100%, whether it is your job requires 40, 50, 70 hours. I mean, we all have gravity pushing against us at all times. hmm it's all always trying to make us shorter, um, make things heavier. And, um, and to some extent, we're all primal little creatures that want to preserve. And we don't like to do hard things. Like there's the little you know bird on your shoulder saying, that's hard. Slow down. Sit down. Lay down. Take it easy. Um, however, our, our musculoskeletal system as well as our nervous system and our gut and all of those things respond <laughs> – remarkably well to movement, resisted movement, whether that be simply the endorphins, you know, the runner's high that often gets spoken about or athlete's high that you get from endorphins, Um, osteoarthritis, everyone's going to experience it. It means death, taxes, and osteoarthritis. (laughs) Um, It's uh, our joints really respond well to movement. Our, um, Our cartilage is like a sponge. Um, you know, if like that sponge you leave on the counter and it just dries out and it it can become brittle and kind of yucky. But if you, as soon as you have like a puddle of water and you put that sponge in the water, it kind of sucks up some of the water. But as soon as you compress that sponge and release it, it kind of, you know, sucks up the water and becomes uh, a squishy, nice, supple sponge again. That's how the cartilage in your body works. So whether that's in your spine, in your knee, in your shoulder, in your ankle, um, wherever you have cartilage. So how cool is that? Like you can circulate your joint juice quite literally, um, with movement. And, um, I think that that's a really special thing. Physical therapy certainly touched my life a lot. And I, I had my undergraduate in athletic training. So basically sports medicine, um, I sometimes tease that that's a degree in white tape, but, um, I mean, I can tape an ankle with my eyes mm-hmm. closed, but, um, I went further into getting my um, doctorate in physical therapy because I want to know more. Um, I, I, one of my favorite things is, um, neurological injuries or neurorehabilitation. So I used to work in a hospital, um, with individuals post-stroke, like the day they've had a stroke, um, their world is changed upside down. And so you're taking somebody who has, you know, somehow like lost half of their body. Mm-hmm. And, um, you set them up and say like, okay, let's, let's find what's, what's your new normal. How can we find that? And the amount of um, recovery people can have post spinal cord injury, post um, transverse myelitis, uh, stroke, TIA. Um, I mean, I've had individuals have strokes in front of me, unfortunately. Um, and I've, that w- that was really a wild, that was a wild day and somebody, a uh, patient I'll always remember for, um, For a lot of reasons. Um, But it's a huge privilege to get to be with somebody when they're most vulnerable and to set them on their trajectory towards recovery.
0: I can't even imagine. Um, Yeah. Therapists of all kinds have been uh, instrumental in my dad's recovery. I mean, ongoing recovery. Uh, So it's a, it's a phenomenal testament to what you're doing. Uh, did you? So you said you were. Uh, remind me, marine biology originally, and wildlife. Yeah. Okay. So then, what? Presumably, after the accident, you you changed course pretty drastically.
1: Well, I I didn't think I was smart enough to work in human medicine. So I thought I'd work in like animal, like I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was a kid up on the farm, uh-huh. I thought I'll be a vet. And then they, then they told me that you have to sometimes put animals down and it was immediate, like, no, nope, yeah. not doing that. Yeah. Um, but then I thought, Oh, wildlife biology. I get to, you know, but my whole life and not to sound too twisted, but like, I used to imagine that my Barbie dolls used to break their legs, not in some like toy story. Like I blew them up. Like, Mm -hmm. but I imagined that they had like orthopedic injuries. So I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then I learned that physical therapists get to spend more time with their patients and get to help them arguably just as much as an orthopedic surgeon Mm -hmm. and can be really well-versed. And that's, that's where I got into it. My um, physical therapist during my recovery was also a triathlete, and um, I wanted to be just like her. So she was an athletic trainer, physical therapist, and here I am as a uh, retired triathlete, but um, athletic trainer, physical therapist, and still athlete.
0: Yeah. Oh, big time. So, so speaking of the current athlete, um, you've gotten into gravel in a in a fairly uh, monumental way. You. Did the, was 2021 your first unbound?
1: No, I did it in, um, before COVID, so 2019.
0: Okay. Um, that
1: was my first unbound and,
0: it back
1: in and it's a former
0: iteration of yep. a, a different name. Yep. 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 Um, I mean, taking a page out of what you had said earlier, where you don't want to be seen as different. You don't want to, you know, be seen walking with with an asymm- asymmetric gait, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I want to say, and maybe I could be incorrect, that you're the first para athlete to complete Unbound. Mm-hmm. G- given that there is no para category in Unbound and in most gravel races, do you want like do you want to be on the leading edge? In doing it as a para athlete, or or do you just want to be among the masses?
1: Twenty years ago, I was fine to be among the masses, and in many ways, I'm still very fine with that. Yeah. Uh, however, I, I see this as an opportunity to. We're we're trying to bring people to the table and make the table longer.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, I initially in my racing career, I was pretty self-centered and you kind of have to be oh, um, sure. <laughs> and uh now as i'm i'm in my late 30s and 39 my last year of 30s Likewise. um and I, I see this as in, in the culture of gravel and so forth is was really changing and and you can kind of feel the tide of usac usac cycling or um UCI and you kind of feel these other governing bodies coming towards cycling. And I was like, cool. Um, Let's make sure that there's space at that table for people with physical impairments. Because right now there is paracycling in road and track events. Why not mountain bike and gravel? Mm -hmm. And I can answer why, but I won't. But like, so I'm trying to help people answer why and find those solutions because often it's because people don't know or don't understand or are, aren't familiar with. And I can fill that gap, whether that's with my academic degree or my cycling credentials. I, I understand, like I've raced around the world with people with uh, so many different physical impairments and different ways of finding those solutions. And the thing is, is that um, the bike is basically a wheelchair, right, you, you, <laughs> you sit on it and yeah. it's powered with your legs. It's highly adaptable, like if your hands are tender, you can change your handlebars your stem or now there's suspended front forks or if you have back pain you can change the geometry there or if you have a leg length discrepancy you can change where your cleats are or your pedal crank arm lengths like it's a really adaptable tool so mm-hmm. let's like acknowledge that what we're doing is just broadening the scope of what you know how we're adapting to all of our our injuries um, according to a world health organization study that came out last november Everybody will experience a physical impairment at some point. Thankfully, it's temporary. 15% of the world's population lives with a permanent physical impairment. That's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot. And the bike is a great tool for all of us to explore and redefine our abilities. And now that's kind of where I've taken over and like, oh, cool. Like, let me, how can I make sure that? People that that look like me, or look different than me, or have visual impairments, or um, you know, poor hand grip, um, uh, have had a stroke, or who have trans- transverse myelitis, or have had a spinal cord injury, or CP, or like, cerebral palsy, or um, or other spasticities. Like, there's so many ways that you can be have, be born, have a congenital impairment, or acquire an impairment. And I think um, the biking community has space for that. And the table's long enough. Um, let's just know how to open, pull out the chair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Extend that invitation Mm -hmm. because it's not obvious how, how, what was your introduction to gravel? Um, was it a natural evolution? Um, was it of interest? Like, yeah. Talk to me about that, that initial (laughs) step into gravel
1: my first gravel event outside of our local Rocky mountain Roubaix, yeah.
0: um,
1: is, uh, uh, was Rebecca's private Idaho.
0: Oh, in nice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the mechanics for the national team, he's an army veteran has a physical impairment from being blown up. Um, and then there was another athlete that I'd raced with at the national level who was a ranger and he was shot in combat. And, um, has a neurological impairment and then I raced with some other veterans and they wanted me to come because, um, they knew I I could, I could race, I could ride with them. I could complete the course. Mm -hmm. So I went and did the Rebecca's private Idos queen stage race. And, um, those guys only did the baked potato, which is the last big day. They didn't do the full stage race Uh anyway. Um, Rebecca and, uh, her motivation and desire to increase um, opportunity at her event. She, uh, It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, let's invite people with physical impairments. And so her race was the first race to include paracycling categories. So back in, I think it was like 2017 or 2018, Mm -hmm. I did RPI and we were on Team Scratch and Dent, which is kind of a nod to RPI. Because, like, you know, you can, yeah, we all have some injuries or we, you know, might have been repaired in some way, but you can still find some gems at the Scratch and Dent sale. Like, they're still good. I've got a lot of life.
0: So, um, that's magnificent.
1: Uh, from there, it just kind of grew. Like I saw the value in it and how, um, having something to train for being invited to the table, to the, you know, the event, um, being recognized that, I mean, no event I think has actually tried to be exclusive saying like, you can't come. Um, but sometimes like women's events, like you need to invite women and say like, we really do want you here. And this is how we can facilitate that. Mm -hmm. Or uh, people um, in in, like BIPOC grants, like we really do want more just diversity. Like how can we facilitate that, overcome those barriers, trans, non-binary, same reason, like, you know, how can we bring something that is reflective of the general wider population into our cycling event? And if, 15% 15% of the world has a physical impairment. I think it's worthwhile to call those individuals out because often, yeah, like, like kind of like me or other people, I mean, they don't feel worthy or they don't, they don't want to be the slow one, or they don't know that the race is open to them and they need that direct call and invitation. And so I want people to you know live up to their diversity, equity, inclusion principles and help them fulfill that. Yeah. You know, we don't know what we don't know, and sure. we can only look through the lenses that we have like i didn't i I wasn't given this lens from birth, like I got it when I was nineteen, right, and now I have a lot of years and uh, professional experience, so how can I share my perspectives with others so that we can all be the best we can be?
0: That is pure gold um yeah, that's awesome. Here's a wild thought. Provoking question, which is not meant to be thought provoking and more a little bit more knee-jerk. If you hadn't found cycling, where or what do you suppose you'd be doing?
1: I don't know. And see do you, so you kind of use the word you what would you be doing? That's yeah. a subjunctive tense again, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's not bad, but it's like, I don't know what I would be doing. And I don't care. I'm not gonna spend time on that. Um, I, I, I'm sure I would have found something, um, hopefully, you know, it wasn't like drugs or alcohol or something like that. Um, I ride my bike because it doesn't hurt. Like I, I can, I can hike, I can run. Um, I, I do, I'm very lucky to have mobility, Mm -hmm. but a couple, uh, winter before last, I was on the couch for eight weeks with a blood clot. I didn't expect that to happen. But I know that my mobility is not guaranteed. Yeah, I know that I might not be able to live in this house my whole life because there are stairs and it's not wheelchair accessible. Um, my perspectives are a, a little bit different, so I'm going to do everything I can while I can, until I can't, and then I'm going to find something else. So Some probably might be might have been swimming, might be um, I don't know what it would what it would be, but it will be something. I will do something. Yeah. and um, i guess i can only hope that it is not uh well ho- hopefully it is like sex drugs and rock and roll maybe but um <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um i'll find something um
0: yeah another great answer <sighs> um what would you be doing if it wasn't if it wasn't cycling what would you be doing i don't know well i My answer is a little more boilerplate and boring because I went to a small liberal arts school just down the road here in Vermont that uh, I studied economics and the majority of people who studied economics ended up on Wall Street and worked in the finance world. And finance certainly was not of interest and pursuit of mine when I decided to declare economics as a major in college. I just thought it was the most... uh, applicable given what I wanted to do. Uh, I was decently good at math, and I thought, okay, let's put a dollar sign in front of those numbers and and make it uh, an economics pursuit. So yeah, it's kind of a boring answer, but probably that. Um, But then at the same time, as I asked that question of you, I thought there's some sort of gravitational thing between cyclists and cycling which sounds a little bit cheesy but yeah it's like did you find the sport or did the sport find you and and it's it's it alludes to what you were saying it's like we're almost in a way predisposed to have found this really fun two-wheeled or three-wheeled or one-wheeled outlet
1: yeah I think I like from a little kid, I'd always, I'd seen the Olympics and I'm like, I want to be the next Bonnie Blair. That's when I was a kid from Downers Grove, Illinois. I was like, wow. Or um, I want to be the next, you name it, whatever your sport is. Like I wanted to be the next um, Lindsay Davenport who was a great female tennis player. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you hit like high school and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be the next great gymnast. Or you get through college and you realize I'm not going to be on the Olympic team. And, um, I didn't like those things change, like your life keeps evolving and things happen. Um, and you have to keep making new expectations, right. Mm-hmm. Or new goals or be okay with the things that it, the opportunities that have passed. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know I qualified for the Paralympic team. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was impaired enough, or I didn't know if I had the right impairment whatever that means. Cause I just didn't know. I didn't have anybody that looked like me here in Missoula, Montana. Um, mm-hmm. And social media isn't wasn't what it is today, and hopefully like I, I had this uh friend here in, in Missoula who lost his leg three years ago to cancer. Um, he actually came out to the east coast of Boston for cancer treatment he's just a, a rock star his name's jack um and I played tennis with his mom in college, and I rode bikes with his dad, so I knew him before Jack was just a or new a, a little twinkle in the, his parents' eye <laughs> but since his um you know, injuries, we've been able to partner up. And so uh, we go for rides. We've been on the tennis courts together. He's now on the varsity tennis team as a freshman. I'm just so stoked for him. Nice. And I got to ride bikes with him last weekend at our, our local gravel race series. Mm-hmm. And um, just the other night we went out for tacos and played arcade games. Like I, I love that guy to pieces, but he's 14 talking to me about Paralympic stuff and um what he wants to do in his athletic career because that's how he's bent too is you know sportsy um and but having me here is like this he's like oh I can do what Meg did and I can probably do it better and that's what I want to be for people is people to see me and go oh I if she can do it I can do it and I can do it better Mm -hmm. that's what I want people to do it better than me
0: you are an inspiration, Meg, Doctor Meg Fisher. Um, yeah, that's remarkable. So call it call it right place, right time. But also through the advent of modern social media, especially the positive sides of it, this message can be reverberated and echoed, and and so on and so forth. Um, what you were saying reminded me of the last question: What would I be doing if it weren't for cycling? Obviously the pursuit of professional cycling is a risky endeavor without a successful, uh, endpoint. Um, and so never, you know, I got into it and just continued along the way and found success all along the way until I made it to the world tour. And all along the way it was taking, you know, coming to a fork in the road that presents a risk and I took it. And one of the reasons that I felt comfortable doing it was my dad worked really, really hard for his, the pursuit of his career. And then to see so much of it torn away from him as a result of the stroke, it was like, it goes back to the subjunctive, like live in the moment because the, as pure as that, live in the moment. You don't, you don't know what the future is going to hold. Um, You've got a power of positive thinking and it's, it's something that is not missed by those who follow what you do.
1: Well, I want to kind of touch back on like what, how you got here. Like I, I remember reading that you, you had your kind of a email that you would send out to your family, right. About what you were doing. And somehow that kind of got out and your ability to write and be able to draw people to the sport and kind of bring people in, in a really accessible way. Like that's awesome. Like you've had this gift of word and um, the ability to connect with people and like I can't write. And so I, 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 I just admire how you connect with people. And cause when you're on the pointy end of the race, like that's, there's not many people out there and there's not many people in the world tour and it's really exclusive and discriminatory and in, in the best ways, like that's just how it is. Like it, it takes a lot of hard work and you have to really, yeah, it gets whittled down,
0: mm-hmm. but for
1: you to be able to like, pull back the curtains and bring people with you. And then in this kind of gravel expedition that you've been on, like it, uh, your wake is huge. Um, the butterfly effect it, it's, it's so awesome. Um, and I've been listening to your, your podcasts uh, while I ride and, um, seeing what your family does and with rooted. Like that's also growing. It, it, um, oh, quick side note: I um, went to Vermont last fall for a wedding. Nice. I now put um, maple syrup in my coffee.
0: Oh heck um, yeah! <laughs> um,
1: I think it's just a, it's, yeah. I want to be able to tell you in person, like how awesome it is what you're doing.
0: That is that is very kind. I, I mean, I mentioned the positive sides of social media. I think I've had the. Ability to echo, not echo, to, to, to tell what I'm doing as a result of sort of early adoption of a lot of social media things. And certainly we live in an age that social media is not inherently positive, um, but it's, it's nice to eke some positivity out of it now and again. Um, oh. So that's, it, that means a lot. I appreciate what you've just said.
1: Yeah. You never really know how far your words or what your, where your message goes, but I've been, sounds so creepy, but like I've been following your journey for years and it's (laughs) inspired me to um, try new things, do things, try harder. um, And yeah, like want to do what you're doing. Like I've, I've, the King ride for your dad, like I am like, Oh man, that's such a great idea. Like I think it's, awesome a lot of people don't recognize how prolific common uh, neurological injuries are and in cycling we talk about it with um, head injuries people having concussions and getting that getting brushed off whether that be in soccer or really American football or European or soccer football like concussions happen a lot and they're kind of like the dark hole or black hole we don't really know what the end of it is and each one is different depending on like how your brain is wired to begin with and then how you rewire it or how much you sleep or eat or don't sleep or eat, you know, drink. Um, it's so individual, but the concept of neuroplasticity is, is real mm-hmm. fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, uh, man. Um, I just, yeah, I think the King ride is great.
0: What you're doing. Well, that's tremendously appreciated. Uh, at the tail end of the show, when I do an outro, I will make sure to get people to sign up. Um, <sighs> I don't know if we
1: so far away. I wish I could be like, I wish it was my backyard.
0: Oh uh, yeah. I was, I, was I, I don't know if we caught it at the beginning of the show, if I'd hit record yet, but we were talking about the age in which we live. And this is the, the, you know, soon aftermath of not aftermath. We're living through a pandemic and and hopefully we're coming out the other side and one of the results is the amount of technology that we're using and and stuff like zoom phone calls with my punchline being like i throughout this entire phone call zoom call i like i w- i wish we were in the same room because i just kind of want to give you a big hug <laughs> and yeah Uh, My hope is in one month's time, a little less, we'll be able to be in the same place at the same time in Emporia, Kansas. um, With the asterisk that Laura is due with our second child in that rough window. So I might have a do not go to Kansas card to play. Um, I'm going to say thank you. So much for your time, for your insight, for your thoughts, for opening up in a very candid way. Uh, I hit you with a big question to begin with, and I think that that characterized the the whole conversation. So I can't really thank you enough.
1: Oh, this is it's my privilege. Um, I'm in a position now um, where I, I can I can share things, and I wanted help people make that table longer. Like we talked about, like, um, I want to bring people to the sport because if, if I can do it at like five, four four hundred ish pounds and one leg, mm-hmm. like if I can do these things, I want people to know that they can do them too. If they want to do them. Yeah. Like I think if you don't want to do them, like if you don't want to ride 200 miles, don't do it. Uh-huh. But if you do, chances are you can Yeah. like if you want to come out to rooted, I think there's two distances, right? And so like, if you want to take on the bigger day, cool, great challenge yourself. Um, if the shorter distance is your sounds more inviting, cool, challenge yourself. Like there is no change without challenge, whether that's, you know, between your two ears or, um, you know, in your heart or your lungs or in your muscles or in your bones or in your tendons, you have to challenge yourself to change. Mm -hmm. And, um, So I'm really grateful for this opportunity to try to challenge the cycling community to make that table longer and support them as they do it. So uh, thank you for this chance.
0: My pleasure, my distinct pleasure. Well, be it in a month or in two months at Rooted, whenever it is, uh, I look forward to meeting in person. And I can't thank you enough. And I wish you a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you, you as well. Happy Monday.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for your candor, your honesty, your insight. I really can't put words to how tremendously powerful and meaningful it is, so thank you. I appreciate the hard work of you, our listeners. You heard Meg mention it, so maybe you're waiting to hear more about the King Challenge Ride. That's right. The King Challenge Bike Ride takes place this October 15th, 2022. All information can be found at kingchallenge.org. As always, for each of its past 12 years, this ride benefits the Crumple Center, which is an organization dedicated to improving the lives of those living with brain injury. If you have made it this deep into this episode, then I need not explain why it is meaningful to me to have created this ride. But given that brain injury is a hidden epidemic, you can likely rest assured that it affects someone close to you, whether you know it or not. Thank you, as always, to my podcast editor, John Summerford of Bears Records, B-A-R-E-S-R-E-C-O-R-D-S. Find him online or just send me a note if you need anything edited related to audio or video. You do a bang up job. Thank you, John. If you've enjoyed this show, my friends, my listeners, my dear, esteemed people out there, those ratings do make a big difference. For simplicity, I'll just say it here. Like, share, subscribe. Thank you very much. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.